Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about estate planning. More specifically, we're talking about some lesser known estate planning challenges for those who hold a concentrated equity position in the company they work for. Though it may seem like a very distant and high-class problem that only the super wealthy among us will ever have to contend with, for many tech workers who have accumulated a significant size stake in their employer, it's not unlikely that estate taxes are something they'll have to consider as part of their overall financial plan at some point. In fact, with the number of bills currently floating around the halls of Congress with the intention to increase tax revenue by lowering the estate and gift tax thresholds, there could be significantly more Americans who will be impacted by this problem soon enough. And while the importance of a well-crafted estate plan is certainly an issue I am passionate about, I am by no means the expert in this arena. So I decided to call up someone who is and have a conversation. My guest, Aaron Rubin, is a partner at Werba, Rubin, and Papier, a wealth management firm catering to pre-IPO executives and early employees. Prior to his current firm, Aaron spent time at Deloitte, where he worked on trusts and estates, as well as honed his skills in their private client advisory department. Aaron also received his JD from University of Illinois, and in 2019, he published Financial Adulting, a guide to help young professionals navigate the challenges of taxes, investments, and estate planning. So with that brief introduction, welcome Aaron Rubin to the Tech Money Podcast. Gosh, it's fantastic to be here. Yeah, I, I appreciate you making the time to do this, man. So I breezed through your resume pretty quickly there in my intro. What else should I have included? Yeah, so so I've been working in the industry um, that I'm working in currently, wealth management slash tax, for about 10 years now, 12 years. Uh, now that I think about it, and um, it's been it's been really interesting to see kind of all the different tech companies go public and to really get deep into um, again a lot of the tax issues that do pop up for people. So again, I've I have a good amount of experience there, and again, it, it's been great. So you may have actually answered this question for me, but I'll, I'll in your your response just now, but I'll ask it anyway. Which is as somebody who's been to law school pass the CPA exam and pass the CFP exam, what do you actually consider yourself? Like, are you a lawyer who likes taxes and financial planning too? An accountant who likes tax law and financial planning or a financial planner who wanted to be able to give legal and accounting advice and is an overachiever. And that was the only way you could, you could. (laughs) Right. So, well, if you ask my mother, she'll tell you I'm not a real lawyer. (laughs) Uh, That's, but you know, that's, that, that's her. Uh, No, I, I actually, I went, when I went to undergrad, I discovered I loved I loved tax and I loved accounting, which made me a very sick person. And um, and 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 during that time, I also decided I was going to go to law school. So, uh, so that's what I did. And in my second year of law school, I ended up meeting my wife, and her father was in the financial planning business. Uh, and so after law school, and after we decided to get married, he said, "Well, how do you want? How, do you want to work for me?" I said, sure. And, uh, and so it was one of those things where, you know, I got into it because the opportunity arose. 
And so, you know, I, I didn't know that's what I was going to be doing. You know, would I've gone to law school if I would have known that was my path? I, I don't know. Probably, you know, it's been very helpful for a background. Um, and certainly the CPA part has been exceptionally helpful. And to, to, but to, to put out put out something you said, I do not give legal advice. So that's that's one thing. I, I am not a practicing attorney. And I tell all my clients that, you know, it's uh, when they want me to do their wills or trust, the answer is no. There are people who specialize in that, who that's like what they do, eat, breathe all day. And they're the ones that I, I, I refer to for that sort of work. And even the tax stuff, you know, I, I know a lot about it. You know, I've you know done all the education, have the experience. A lot of times, you know, when it comes to the nuts and bolts of it, I will, you know, I'll turn it over to my team. Um, you know, we have a tax director who's, you know, again, she eats, breathes, lives this stuff. So um, I, I sort of combine kind of all those worlds. So I guess that's a really roundabout way to say, you know, I started off as an accountant who became a CPA, who then decided to become a, a financial planner, CFP. Uh, and then, and now I'm sort of a CFP that just so happens to have all of those things. And I do, I do do the tax planning as well. Yeah. I guess I should say uh, for the audience listening to this, who the majority of them are not financial services professionals. So they may not even have gotten the nuance in the question I was asking, but so much of each industry I just described, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, prevents you or prohibits you from giving advice on the other two things in, in the way that it's written. And so people will go as far as to get, you know, JD, CPA, and CFP to be able to legally give advice in all three domains, right? So if you're an accountant, you're cautioned against giving legal advice and giving investment advice, and then for the other two, vice versa. And so I asked that question somewhat jokingly, but uh, also out of curiosity, because anytime I see those three letters next to somebody's name, uh, I'm always like, well, which one is the thing that you consider? And then what's the other stuff that you added in later? Because you're like, well, this, you know, either makes me more well-rounded or keeps me from uh, running afoul of (laughs) of regulators. Um, But anyway, so I mentioned in my intro, you know, that you guys work with executives and early employees from late stage startups, but could you define, you know, you guys clientele and your, your area of expertise a little bit better for us? I'm sure there's more to it than that. Yeah. So our clients, typically have have worked at a place for a while either they founded it or maybe again if it's a if it's a bigger company their employees you know one through 200 mm-hmm. uh, and and they start off early enough that they got a very sizable portion of stock options or they if they were founders they actually got stock right off the bat mm-hmm. uh, and um, and so you know what what we do is we we help them think through some of those decisions before the company goes public because there's a lot to do before an IPO happens, before an S1 happens. I mean, geez, even before around defunding or around e-funding happens, there's things that you should do to set yourself up for success down the line that, that will, that will make sure that when your tax time comes, right. And, and at some point, you know, again, there are exceptions, but at some point tax time is going to come where you have to pay something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and hopefully you've set yourself up so that you can maximize what you get to keep because the government always has it has its hand in your pocket and if we can help design a plan that gives you more that means you can 
you know, either one, obviously your lifestyle, right? If, if you want to spend on yourself, fine. I think, I think our clients tend to think about things a little bit differently. I think our clients tend to think about their kids and grandkids, you know, if they have grandkids at that point, usually they don't, or they're thinking about charities mm-hmm. and, and the, and the more you can, you can keep for yourself, the more you can do and help the people you love. So yeah, it, it's about, it's about taking that early that early employee and really helping them maximize what they can do. Well, stay there for a minute. I, you mentioned founders a couple of times and I'll come back to that in a second, but uh, you guys have been a part of several IPOs vicariously through your clients, right? Through the the, the years, you know, you guys have been uh, operating in this space. What's the best thing you've seen someone do following an IPO announcement that was like evident that that company was going to go public? You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, that's a, that's a really hard thing to say that it's evident because even, I mean, look at places like WeWork, Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they were like a week out Mm -hmm. (laughs) from, from Mm -hmm. listing and then the whole thing sort of imploded. So there's, there's no, there's never any certainty around it. So you still have to be careful even when, again, the, again, that what people really look for is when you file that S1 mm-hmm. and the S1, right. Is your declaration that, yeah, you know, we're, we're going public soon. Then you have your road shows, you know, and all that good stuff. Well, to your point though, we didn't get any of the, the really nitty gritty on, on WeWork until they filed the S1, yeah. which was their way to kind of shove it through the door as fast as they possibly could. Yeah. So uh, even <laughs> sure. then it doesn't necessarily mean anything's guaranteed. I appreciate you actually pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, th- I think for, you know, again, you, you can be reasonably certain, right? When the S one's filed, that, that it's going to happen pretty darn soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for for my clients, I think a lot of it depends on 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 what kind of listing it is. So, like for instance, we were working with people at Coinbase, and Coinbase was a direct listing, mm-hmm. uh, and and so when you have a direct listing, you don't have typically the same lockup periods that you do than if it's like an IPO or a mm-hmm. SPAC. So, so for, so for everyone that I talked to and, and not everyone became clients, but everyone I talked to at Coinbase, their strategy was as soon as this thing is tradable, I'm trading. Mm-hmm. They could have done some exercising and holding, but I think they didn't, they realized how fickle crypto markets were. And they said, I don't want my fate tied to that. And so Though, so a lot of those people, a lot of the employees that I talked to, at least, they they made that smart call of saying, "Hey, you know what? This is this is found money, <laughs> and 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 I'm not I'm not wasting this, and I'm not taking the risk." Yeah, and and wouldn't you know it, <laughs> they, they were right, <laughs> and uh, at least at least for now, we'll we'll see what happens in the next few years. I don't have a crystal ball on on Coinbase, but for for those that are still like sitting on their on the options piece of it uh what what they are what they and and if it's an ipo or a spac right there's probably going to be six months that you're not going to be able to trade there's now there the trend is that after the first earnings employees get to trade some amount whether it's 10 to 20 percent 25 percent something like that and then after the second earnings call then they get to sell another additional portion then by six months then 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 they can fully sell whatever they want to assuming that the window is still open for them all of that being said if if your company files at s1 and you're really confident then in the next probably month or two you know it's going to be going public 
then the, the time might be right to exercise, but you got to be super careful because you can find yourself in, in, a, in a jam if you're exercising a bunch of incentive stock options. Let's let's say it happens in you know third quarter of the year. Again, no one's IPing, IPOing right now, so it doesn't really matter. But you know, in in, in normal years, right where the where the market's generally up, you know, if if you if you if you exercise a bunch of ISOs, you know, you create a huge tax bill on the ISO side of things in, you know, third, fourth quarter of the year, you're gonna owe the tax by April of the following year. Sure. And so you might not be able to sell and, and you don't want to find yourself in that situation. And so, you know, I, I think I think the people that 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 make you know, again, they they think through those sorts of decisions, they work with CPAs or they work and again if attorneys probably not but again working with your CPA to understand all these consequences I think that's what really smart people do and they do it early on but if if you even if you didn't do it early on if you're doing it when that S1 comes out to to try to form a strategy behind your buying and the selling that I think is is what really smart people do But have you seen anybody do anything I guess I'll ask the question a little bit differently have you seen anybody do anything maybe interesting when the announcement has been made, right? Like you mentioned, folks want to give to charity or folks want to, you know, go out and make a big purchase or something like that. A lot of times, you know, early employees at one startup will go found a new startup themselves, you know, with, with that liquidity event being the seed money that, that, that helps them start that thing. Like, have you seen anybody do anything really interesting and unique following an IPO? Oh, following an IPO. Oh, absolutely. I thought you were, I'm sorry. I, th- I thought you were referring to people doing things interesting after the S1 comes out or after it becomes obvious there will be an IPO. The, you know, after the IPO, sure. You know, again, on people, people that are entrepreneurs, they don't, you know, just because they, they hit once, they, they, they can't give up. <laughs> they, they, they're ever entrepreneurs. Uh, and so we certainly have, have clients that, you know, as soon as they're able to, to get some liquidity, they immediately, you know, start to try to fund a new venture. Uh, and that, and that's always really exciting. And, and, and the planning opportunity, obviously you need to, to, to think through it because, you know, again, if you're starting something up, you're not going to get paid for several years. And so you, you need to, you know, think through, Hey, I, I need to make sure I have the cash available to me. Yeah. Uh, so uh, again, we, we, we talk a lot about that uh, with people. Hey there, listeners. It's Eric with an A. And I'm interrupting the show for just a moment to tell you about our newest offering, the Tech Money Guide to Restricted Stock Units. This guide was developed to teach those who are paid in RSUs to develop a plan for how and when to convert those shares into actual dollars, as well as how to incorporate them into your overall personal financial plan. You may have already heard episode 50 where Malcolm described the guide in detail, as well as his own philosophy and rules of thumb when it comes to managing this valuable form of equity compensation. If you haven't, no problem. We would still encourage you to head on over to tech-money.com and download a free copy of the guide today. There's also a link to it in the show notes of this episode. Again, that web address is tech-money.com and you can download a free copy of the guide right there from the homepage. In keeping with the promise of this show, our hope is that the Tech Money Guide to Restricted Stock Units helps make you just a little smarter about your money. Now back to the show. Okay, so since this is the place tech workers come to get smarter about their money, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is that I don't think we talk enough about what what to do with concentrated equity positions when we talk about estate planning as as financial planners and, and 
financial professionals, uh, typically the conventional wisdom is to just hold on to the stock until you die, right? Borrow against, borrow against it if you need liquidity. And, you know, I don't know, maybe you want to buy a social media platform or something and you got to get your hands on $40 billion just at the drop of a hat, right? Then you allow your kids to come in and assume the new basis that's established on the date you pass away. And then finally, they sell the stock for next to no taxes and ride off into the sunset. That's really the the only plan. And, you know, it's a good one. It's tried and true. It's been working. So, like, what am I missing here from an estate planning perspective, you think? Sure. So I would say if your plan is to wait, borrow, and die, and you're a young tech worker, you're let's say again, the young young relative, right? But you know, you're in your 30s or 40s and you're waiting 40 or 50 years, you know, for your mm-hmm. kids to get. I mean, one, a lot can happen with that particular stock. So there there's danger in in that concentration. And, you know, if you need to borrow against it. Again, you're you're going to pay interest for the rest of your life, and and again, there's there there are some issues kind of buried in there. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think when you when you think through some of the challenges when you have stock like that, I think there are a couple things that that people can do, and I think the the first one is is if if you if you have stock, obviously, if you bought it earlier on, you know, let's say pre. Let's say you got in the B round or maybe A round type of shares, and let's say you you had exercised it, mm-hmm. and you're you're sitting on this huge gain. You know, it could be that you have you know what's called called qualified small business stock, mm-hmm. and you've qualified small business stock. You know, you're up to for purposes of our discussion here, up to ten million dollars. You're going to get tax free. Yep, and that tax free number is is per entity or per individual. So you can you can take that that stock you have and potentially split it into different trusts. You can gift parts of it to certain people. Again, depending on the size of, of the transaction, you know, you there's, there's gift tax involved. There's all sorts of things to be aware. Of. I tell clients this all the time. I can spend like all of your money mm-hmm. on estate planning. Uh, you know, I know some people they'll, they'll, they'll do lots of work for you, but you know, you gotta, you gotta figure out one, if it's worth it Two, are you actually gonna get the benefit you think you're going to get? And that's tough because, you know, the earlier you put it into one of these trusts, the better off you're going to be, but the less certainty you have. Hmm. So, you know, you really have to think through that, that, that cost benefit there. And you really have to make a, a judgment call. That's a fair so, point. Cause I figured you were going to tell me, you know, the real key is to transfer ownership of your equity to a trust while the value is still relatively low. And then the future appreciation in that equity isn't hit with estate taxes once I pass away and leave it to my heirs and so forth and so on. But I guess the question is, who would you say should actually be concerned about this, right? Like I may be listening and thinking that really only applies to the founder, right? When you talk about QSBS and maybe a couple of, uh, I guess the founder and and a couple of co-founders, right? Of the company, since they presumably own the lion's share of the equity uh, when the price is at a dollar per share or something like What's the real profile of this person you're talking about? You mentioned before, you know, employees one through 200 or something like that. But what's the the profile of who you think should be worried about qualified small business stock in that $10 million? Exclusion? Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you, if you came to a company, I'll, and again, this is generalizations, right? If you came to the company before you got your C round of funding, mm-hmm. that's Charlie, your C round of funding, you likely have some sort of qualified small business stock, assuming you meet all the other requirements. And there's a litany of requirements to actually 
get qualified for it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we've talked with people, you know, they were early on at LinkedIn. Now they didn't have $80 million and have a hundred million dollars. Sure. They had, they had, he had 10 or, or 12, right? The, perfect. <laughs> you know, great. And, uh, you know, he could sell his, his shares for, you know, essentially, you know, no additional cost. Now, when do you, uh, for tax, again, when I, the tax cost, by the way, that QSBS, if you're a California resident, there's no QSBS in California. So you're going to mm-hmm. be paying California tax, but that, that notwithstanding, when do you start thinking about doing trusts, sub trusts, you know, really complex planning? I think for a lot of people, it it is usually at that founder level when when you start wanting to do that. Certainly, you know, if if, if you're like a really early employee, you know, one through twenty five, and you know, and again, you've you've gotten that B round, and now all of a sudden, you know, there's fifty other people around you, and things are going really well. <clears throat> you have to make that decision of okay, is this company going to be? I mean, Amazon, which no one's going to be Amazon, but you know, is this company really going to take off? Yeah, and 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 if you and if you think that 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 that's really going to happen. Maybe it makes sense to drop the ten to twenty thousand dollars on estate planning to get all those trusts and all and everything done. Again, that's a risk though. You're that's money that's not going to come back to you. So if you do it and then all of a sudden, you know, wouldn't you know it, Apple decides to pick up your company and you get a five million dollar payout, you'll mm-hmm. feel pretty stupid. But again, it's it's one of those things where you you part of it's just sort of reading the room and and understanding the vision of the founders and and the investors and saying, okay, they, this really is going to go public. So again, it's a lot of it's judgment call, which is tough because I, because again, there, I, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule to say, okay, well, if you have 2 million shares now, yeah. you know, you definitely want to do that. You know, and, um, and then the other side of that is if, if, if it's not stock, if it's just options, mm-hmm. you still have to pay for them. Right. <laughs> and, and if you have 400,000 shares at 50 cents a share, you still got to come up with $200,000 mm-hmm. uh, to, to buy this. And, and a lot of people, you know, again, this, it might be their first rodeo and they don't have $200,000 to do that sort of thing. Well, when we talk about like the need to focus on estate planning, I'm not necessarily thinking about the younger person who this is their first rodeo necessarily, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that is maybe, you know, depending on, like you said, how early on you are and the size of how, where the company's grown to, that may be an issue. But I'm thinking about the serial startup employee with this one, right? The person who's yeah. already worked for two or three startups in the past that did, you know, you said nobody, let's not look at Amazon, but let's just say somebody who did like, mediumly well, which I know yeah. isn't grammatically correct, but follow me here. <laughs> so, you know, they had two or three exits and made enough money to to know that they'll be set for the rest of their life as long as they don't, you know, go buy an island and then a jet to get to the island, right? Yep. Uh, that person's decided to take a role at another startup and their employee number like 10 or something, right? So their yep. equity is worth like 50 cents or something to, like you said, they could put their hundred thousand dollars worth of shares into a trust almost immediately only use a hundred thousand dollars of their gift tax exclusion and since that's all they're worth if those shares are, are worth maybe a million dollars down the road not anything crazy you know for the sake of easy math like the remaining nine hundred thousand dollars of appreciation would have escaped estate taxes am i characterizing that right or am i missing something yeah, again, you you move things into trust, and and they can escape estate tax. Now, if depending on the, again, I'm I'm assuming your your estate planning attorney is you know worth their salt, you know, and it's an intentionally defective trust, you know, where you're going to get out of the estate, but you're going to pay the income tax, and 
you know, again, you, you can, you can do some really big benefit. You can do some really great things with that. We'll and stay there for a second. What, what do you, what's an intentionally defective trust? What are we talking about here? Right. So, so if you, an intentionally defective trust is essentially what you do is you have your, um, you, you go to an estate planning attorney and you say, Hey, I have all these shares and I, I need to get them out of my state mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially. And so, you know, you, you put them inside of a trust, which hopefully the the company lets you do because there's restrictions and the income from that trust get, ends up getting reported on your tax return. Because what, what has happened is the, the estate planning attorney has made the trust defective in some way such that the income gets tagged to you, the grantor. So you're paying the tax for whatever happens inside of that trust. However, it is not for estate planning purposes, part of the estate. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of get it out of the estate and because you're paying the tax on it, sort of your tax gets to leave the estate too, because it goes to the government. Um, so whoever is the, res- the the beneficiary on that trust gets an asset that's bigger than, than what it would have been otherwise, because again, you got it in early, it's appreciated. And now this person you know gets to use it. Yeah. I, I, well, here's something else you, you just made me me think about, and I'll I'll ask this one just for my own edification, honestly, and the audience can kind of just come along for the ride on this one. But like, I'm thinking, you know, if I have someone who owns shares in Apple or IBM, for example, right, and they've been there forever, and they want to put that stock into their revocable living trust because they're going to continue to hold on to it forever, and their kids and grandkids better hold on to it forever too, right? Mm. We would just use something called the securities assignment, right, to reassign ownership to the trust instead of to the individual. So like, this is the tactical, how do we get the shares out of my individual ownership and into the ownership of the trust. Right. But I've never run into this problem where the person's stock is in a private company before. What would you do in that instance? Like, is it the same? I assume it's not the same document because that's got to be like for publicly traded stock. So what would you do? Yeah. Your, your main issue when you're trying to, to take non-publicly traded stock and put it into any kind of trust is that, you know, all these stocks have pretty intense restrictions on them. You can't just move them to whoever you want, wherever you want. A lot of times you're going to need, um, you may need board approval. You may need an exception to be made to move them. Sometimes they will let you put them in, you know, a grantor trust. Mm-hmm. So you can, again, it, some that's not like a huge deal uh, because obviously a lot of the founders, they need to do their estate work too. And, and they don't want to die, you know, and have all these shares going through probate. That's like the last thing they want. Yeah. So again, it, it's you, you don't necessarily need a, a different document. I'm assuming you know when you're talking about uh, securities assignment, you're talking about like a, a living revocable trust. Is that is that is that mm-hmm. right? Or mm-hmm. are you talking about something a little bit different? Okay, so yeah, I mean it, it's possible to move it. Um, you know, if if they're stock options, less of a problem because stock options are sitting inside of a qualified plan. Qualified plans all have beneficiaries. You assign the beneficiary, you know, to be your trust. You can get around some of that. Yeah. But if you, if you, if you're just holding the stock outright again, hopefully the company will will realize that that moving it into a revocable trust is if is for the benefit of both parties. Yeah. I you bring up a whole other point that I, you know, I learned unintentionally recently, which was that uh, uh incentive stock I didn't think you could transfer unexercised incentive stock options into a living trust, but apparently you can. 
and something I'll throw out there just in case somebody listening to this is going through this in their brain and it and it's relevant. It's the fact that the trustee just has to be specifically authorized to exercise those options uh, on behalf of the person who granted them to the trust. Is that like a common occurrence since you, you bring that up or is that more of just like a one-off that's kind of rare? I, so I've never seen that. So your, your issue with, with unexercised stock options that technically you don't have an ownership interest in anything yet, Mm -hmm. which, which makes it difficult to transfer. You can't transfer something you don't own. (laughs) Can you transfer the right to exercise the stock to somebody else? You know what? I've never seen it. And, and I'm not sure when you'd want to use that um, either, because I I think my, and again, this is just a guess because I've never seen it, but you're, you're still going to be subject to all the restrictions of insider trading and, and all that. So even if yeah. you if you make if you make it somebody else's decision, I'm not quite sure what you're going to accomplish. Yeah. I I again, this is like extremely wonky and extremely nuanced, but I I think, you know, if nothing else, you're sort of reaffirming the opinion of folks who say it, it's important to exercise early. Um because then you have <laughs> the the freedom and flexibility to make a lot of these decisions that we're talking about. Yeah, and and exercising early is is super important. That if you if you have the opportunity, you have the money, you go out there and you know you you get your you get your shares for essentially no tax cost, mm-hmm. and and you, and you let invest over time, and and you start the clock on QSBS, you start the clock on long term capital gains, and 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 you enjoy. Well, when do you think is like the right time to be making one of these types of gifts that we're talking about to a trust, regardless of the type of trust, Mm. Uh, not necessarily an age, but like what's happening in that person's life as a startup employee that would make you say, yep, time to start gifting shares to your trust. Again, it it goes back to the, hey, this could be a judgment call or it is a judgment call Mm -hmm. that, you know, all this, you know, usually it's. Again, you're looking at your A round or your or seed round. You you have a product of some sort. You still are not sure what kind of legs it's going to have. By the time you get to that B round, you may have had some sales, and and if all of a sudden you start looking at them, you're like, wait a second, this is actually really taking off. That might be a great time to start thinking about moving some things around. Certainly, the C round, you know, you're you're probably trying to scale a little bit. Um, on production mm-hmm. and you've, and you've proven, yeah, this, this, there's a market and, and it's, it's going to be strong. Ideally it's that B round, because again, when you, when you go to move those shares into the trust, especially if, if we're looking at irrevocable trust and, you know, qualified small business stock type trust and potentially defective trust, all that good stuff. When you look at, when you look at that decision, when you move shares over, they're valued at the, at the, at the value of the time you make the transfer. They're not valued at the at the grant price, right? Because you still might pay fifty cents a share for them. But if the fair market value is five dollars a share, for gift tax purposes, you're going to be using five dollars a share. Mm-hmm. If you wait until the C round, it might be twenty dollars a share, and and maybe at that point it's prohibitively expensive, depending on you know if you've used your exclusion prior to that. Sure. So again, you you and 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 the more. The longer you wait, the more exclusion you're going to use per transfer. So again, the earlier you sort of recognize, oh my gosh, this thing, this thing's going to be huge, the better off you're going to be. Now it's a problem because as I, I kind of, I'll go back to that original Coinbase story. I don't think anyone at Coinbase thought it was going to end up being as big as it was. Uh, so again, it, it it would have taken a lot of vision <laughs> for someone to do that. But if you got it, then you know go out and spend the money uh, on the estate planning. 
Well, I would say to the counter to that point, I guess, it's usually the founder, if nobody else, who does think that it's going to be, you know, what it is to use your earlier example, right? Nobody but Adam Newman thought other people were crazy enough to pay to rent desks. And then all of a sudden they were in multiple countries, right? And so I guess to your point, if you are founder or early, early stage employee, you believe in the company enough that maybe it is worth it to you to put those shares into a trust early on to protect your future value from estate taxes and everything else that comes along yeah. with it. Well, yeah. And, and it's, it's not only estate tax, but it's income tax, you yeah. know, which, which is huge. And, and if you're the founder and you've had a couple of, you know, good successes, you know, and you're, you're totally comfortable and, and you got the 10 to $20,000 to burn, go do it. I mean, go, go, go save your, go save your estate and your, and your family, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, go for it. Yeah. You may have been, uh, just answered this unintentionally, but I'll ask <laughs> it anyway, just in case before we get ready to wrap, what would be your main message to folks who are sitting on, you know, shares from a startup that they have a super low basis in because, you know, they got there early on, but their plan is to worry about the taxes and other estate issues once they IPO. They're just, you know, they're too busy right now, let's say. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't think it's be surprising that anyone who's who's been listening to this, don't don't wait. Talk to one an advisor, whether it's a financial advisor, definitely get some tax help on it. Invest the time now and and you are going to be rewarded later on. And and so again, that I, I'd say that's that's the big thing. Plan for the tax now because it's 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 tough to see. You know, someone comes in and says, "Oh yeah, you know, I've got twenty million dollars of XYZ company." It's like, well, yeah, no, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you you have you have twenty million dollars less, perhaps fifty per, less fifty percent, um, because between the again, I'm in California, you know, where the mm-hmm. taxes are ridiculous. I know you're in the East Coast, and taxes aren't a whole lot better, but you know, fifty percent might be going out the door. Yeah. Uh, but but had you had you taken some steps, you know, a couple of years before then, maybe it would have only been thirty percent, you know, and and that's not something to sneeze at, um, you know, if you're talking about saving four million dollars, I mean, geez, yeah. do that every day. Fair enough. Well, my last question actually has probably absolutely nothing to do with taxes or estate planning, so you can relax your shoulders a little bit, sit back and relax for a little bit for this one. But uh, let's say you never found your passion for those two things, taxes and estate planning. So you had to find a different way to occupy your days, but money wasn't a factor in your decision-making at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now? All right. So money is not a factor. Is not right. a factor. What am I, what am I doing? Um, gosh, I don't know. It's, it's hard. You know, I, so I, I have three kids, so I'd, I'd probably be, be, be hanging out with them a lot. Uh, although they'd probably, they're they're getting almost to be teenagers, so I don't know if they want to hang out with data <laughs> as, as, as as much. The window's uh, closing on us. Yeah. Oh, it 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 sure is. I uh, I was big into track in in college, and I my guess is I would I would probably be be teaching discus and shot put for hmm. at, you know at, at the high school level is probably okay. what I do. That's a unique one. We haven't heard that one before. <laughs> um, well, on that note, Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir? I would be happy to. Aaron, let me just tell you from an old guy, if money's no object, your kids will hang out with you. 
you know, wherever you want to take them, right? And uh, you, there you go. Going to hang go. out in Italy? Yeah, but I, I'm hanging out with Dad. <laughs> sure, okay, I guess I'll do it. Yeah. Anyway, I, I love the answer. I love uh, the fact that you're kind of aligned with Malcolm. Malcolm's answer to that question was also teaching, and just in a different yeah. way. Uh, cool. So that was fantastic. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for being on the show, of course. And Malcolm, thank you so much for facilitating this uh, and bringing him to the audience. And our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast and leave a review as this will help others find the show. You can connect with Malcolm on social at Malcolm on Money. We'd love to hear from you and answer any questions you have, and you can do so by emailing them to podcast at tech-money.com. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation.